Over the years, AccessReal.com has interviewed actors, directors and producers from Australia and internationally. These are the people who make the movies we love. Find out what your favourite film folk have been up to by listening to the AccessReal.com interview. Stephen McCallum has recently directed his debut feature film, 1%, an intense drama about an outlaw motorcycle gang called The Copperheads. Stephen has been working towards this goal for a number of years. He graduated from the Australian Film, Television and Radio School in 2011. He directed TV commercials and the popular online marriage equality ad, It's Time, and he was second unit director for Channel 9's Gallipoli miniseries. We spoke with Stephen recently about the process of making his first feature. We're speaking with Stephen McCallum, the director of the new feature film 1%. Congratulations on the film. I've just seen it and it is a really intense 90 plus minutes. Oh, cool. Good. Thanks, Phil. Um, yeah, that's certainly what we intended. So um, I'm glad to see that had the effect that we desired. Nice. <laughs> well, the film's all about a motorcycle club, the Copperheads, and the power struggle between the president, Nuck, played by Matt Nabel, and his right-hand man, Pato played by Ryan Core, and it was also written by Matt Nabel. How did you get involved in the project? What was the first thing you saw? Well, uh, Matt and I had met um, about a year earlier on a TV series called Gallipoli, where I was second unit director. So I, I knew of Matt, I'd met Matt, but um, the project came to me through producer Michael Ponson, who I went to film school with um, right. in Sydney at Afters. And um, he really loved the short film I did there, which was um, set in a colonial convict prison um called six straws and um when he read matt's script he thought i'd be a great fit for um bringing a real kind of tribal visceral um kind of aesthetic and and uh and authentic performance to the piece um so he i read the script and um i really liked it and um and michael was right i really connected to a lot of the themes that were in the um in the, in the script, uh, at at its heart, it's a story about a man that has to choose between his brother uh, brother and his father, which is something I really, really connected with, and um, you know, and I really was um, uh, intrigued by the world of outlaw motorcycle clubs. It's something I've been intrigued with and uh, interested in for a long time. So the chance to to do my first film in that sphere was something I couldn't turn down. So, talking about the motorcycle clubs as a subject. The stuff you filmed, how did you make that authentic? Yeah, I mean, that was something I really, um, you know, had to focus on from the get-go. The script was originally kind of set in the 70s and a little bit more straightforward, and I really wanted to bring out the more tribal Shakespearean themes and um, and modernise it. And 
the first step with anything really is always research. So, um, you know, I watched every documentary I could, read every book. But the main thing was actually meeting these guys face-to-face and talking to current and ex-members um, of Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. All right. Well, how, how long did that go on for sort of uh, a, a year or so? Or? Yeah, I mean, it was an ongoing process over about a year in development uh, where Matt and I, the script that, that I initially saw was very different to the film we made. Um, it was initially kind of a gang film, um, multiple different gangs vying for power. And um, I knew we just didn't have the money to make that. And so did the producers. And, uh, you know, we really discussed, could we put all the conflict in one club and then really make it more of a Shakespearean story of ambition and betrayal and father versus son? And, um, you know, more importantly, bringing out the female characters how did you work out um, from what you were told how you were going to make things, I guess, look and sound? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because um, really ultimately what I did was I chose different aspects from multiple different clubs and multiple different people. Um, so I, I had a particular vision in mind for what I wanted the club to feel and look like. And so I just borrowed from yeah, multiple resources and melded it together. Um, you know, there's tribal influences from Zealand and then there's more military um, aspects like where you, where you draw from like the Concheros or um, the Mongols um, as well. So, yeah, it was, it was really just an amalgamation. I wanted, I wanted to create my own world, my own club. And uh, did you have any of your uh, research subjects uh... On, on set as advisors at any point? Yeah, we did. We had a um, we had a, a member, an ex member on set as a as a, a military advisor, really, yeah. um, for lack of a better word. Whilst every club's different, there are certain things that, that members do and um, and protocols they follow, like any organisation or any cult or any you know religion really that that feel authentic so he was really um you know a wonderful resource in, in making it happen he saw it actually at sydney premiere which was great and he was just really um blown away and um and thankful for how much it felt like a to him um so yeah that was that was rewarding so it felt pretty real to him yeah yeah he thought it was great ah. he, he was um yeah he was over the moon did you ever i'm sure it won't to everybody um you know every club is different and you know oh, yeah. We're telling a story. It's not a documentary. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. I'm sure some – it's like when Romper Stomper came out. Yeah. I remember, you know, current affair articles and stuff like that where they got skinheads to watch the um, watch the film and they came out and they were furious <laughs> saying, you know, you've, you've, you've completely bastardised our um, subculture. and That's going to happen. But, um, you know, we've tried to be faithful to the story and, and the world we've created. Did you uh, ever have a sort of a, a – an interesting moment where your your uh, your advisor sort of uh, pointed out something like huh, that would never happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a few times, you know. Not so much um, on set. On set, he was great. Um, but there were some things where he was like, "That this wouldn't happen." I'm like, "Yeah, but mate, you know, we're telling a story." He was <laughs> like, "Yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, that would happen in another club." Oh, and you know, when I was on Gallipoli, we had we had similar things um, with the military advisors there. You know, they, they had to work with us to to be able to convey the story visually. Um, you know, with it because you're always trying to convey story beats within a um, condensed time frame, and sometimes you have to take liberties. But on screen, you know, that works. Um, whereas in reality, it sometimes doesn't. That's that's filmmaking. So you're getting, yeah, so you're getting the, uh, you're doing the research, you're getting all that stuff nailed. But as you've said several times, 
uh, you're telling a story. Uh, in fact, you use the word Shakespearean, which is uh, good because that was in my question, which was this. Uh, alongside Matt Nabel and Ryan Kaur's characters, you've got Simone Kessel and Abby Lee, and both those women mm-hmm. have a sort of, uh, in their characters, they have a kind of a Lady Macbeth feel. What what was your thinking there? Yeah, well, I mean, I when I first read Matt's script, I saw that connection straight away, mm-hmm. but I, I, I saw it as a real house divided story, um, um, you know, uh, succession and ambition and betrayal, like I said before. And, and, and essentially, I, I saw the two female characters. I was like, we have an opportunity here to have two Lady Macbeths in one story, which <laughs> I thought would be really fascinating. So, yeah, we worked hard in development to elevate that. And that was something that, you know, a lot of people comment on. It's definitely, you know, designed like that. I just felt, you know, I, <clears throat> the reason I connected to, I'm by no means a Shakespeare file or anything like that, mm-hmm. but I connect to those stories because, they're just so like visceral and uncompromising in, in the lengths people go to for ambition. And I, I thought that resonated in this, um, in this tale. Well, in fact, there is so much about people fighting for power. Um, is that something that uh, you've just drew out of this particular story? Is that actually a, a bigger theme you see uh, uh, often all around? Is that a big subject for you? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've always, I always get attracted to in stories like, you know, some of my favourite films like There Will Be Blood and, um, you know, where it's definitely, it's, you know, power belongs to those strong enough to hold it. And I feel that this had those aspects as well. So I really wanted to elevate that. And I think when you do that, um, you know, it, it really makes the story a bit more universal. I mean, I'm by no means, you know, fascinated by bikey gangs. I'm fascinated by subculture and I'm fascinated by, um, wanting to belong to something bigger than yourself and, and the cost and the, and the rewards for that. And ultimately, in most cases, whether it's in business, um, you know, or, or a cult, it's all about power and power corrupts. And, and I found those, those aspects really interesting. And for me, that's what the story is about. It just happens to be in a, in a bikey club. It could, be in, it could be any other sort of organisation. It's interesting because the family part of that, the idea that if I'm not in the club, I'm not in my family and my tribe, uh, you really made that clear that uh, the loss of that was a big, big thing for these characters. Oh, great. I mean, that, that's really important to me. And I think that's part of the thing of the film, film as well. I mean, you, don't, you very rarely exit out of the four walls of the club you know there's not really any outside characters and and it really does feel like a little world that they're in and to be banished from that means everything to them and that's something that we drew from real life as well in terms of clubs um you know these these clubs really do operate as a family for people that don't have one and it means a lot to them and to lose your colors um is the worst uh, punishment you can have so yeah that was yeah it felt like being exiled from a kingdom I often say, you know, this could have been said a thousand. If this was said a thousand years ago, these guys would have been kings. Um, in today's society, they're outlaws. So, I saw as much resonance with that sense of belonging in, you know, like tribal Scotland or, um, you know, um, medieval Europe or or anything like that. Why are the Copperheads a one percent club? As in, what does the term one percent mean? Yeah, I wasn't able to uh, work it out. <laughs> so it's my problem. I yeah, guess. yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, 1% um, is a code name used by cops to refer to outlaw motorcycle clubs. So um, it, it harks back to a time of the Hell's Angels where 
a newspaper article in the motorcycle newspaper claimed that uh, outlaw motorcycle clubs only made up 1% of uh, motorcycle riders in America. And of course, these guys being who they are, decide to wear that as a badge of honor, literally as a patch on their on their vest. So outlaw motorcycle clubs wear 1% as a badge of honor to show that they're um, above the law. Right. You also seem to have, uh, talking about the view on motorcycle clubs, you also seem to have something going on in the story where um, NUC represents kind of an older idea of what a club can be, whereas Pato presents uh, a newer idea. Uh, is that Was that part of what you wanted to bring forth as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even down to the way they dress, um, Pato's in a, a relatively new model um, biker jacket and, um, and Nuck's got one that he's been wearing for 20 years. And that's a real division that happens in most clubs. In fact, most conflict... Uh, kind of like as in most conflict in most organizations is the old and the new and um, the old bull and the new bull going head to head over progress and one wanting to stay where they are, but you can't. And, and, the, and the young buck coming in and saying, well, we, we need to move forward to survive. And um, yeah, and, and that has been a, um, uh, that's something that happens in real clubs with um, the clubs becoming more monetized and um, becoming more business minded. Uh, whereas the old school bikers is a place to kind of, you know, run a mark and and um, go on runs and can yeah. have parties. Whereas modern modern clubs are more business orientated. They they get called Nike bikies by <laughs> older club members. Do they really? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean we were pretty um, we were pretty. Uh, we we tried to make the younger biker members look pretty cool. Um, in terms of their aesthetic, but there's a real kind of, um, you know, Louis Vuitton kind of aspect to some of the younger members that are um, in charge of bike clubs these days. It was the monetization was really interesting because um, Pato couldn't understand why Nuck wouldn't see money as the most important thing, and, and clearly Nuck did not. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it comes from a couple of different things. I think there as well. It's like Pato's seeing. Pato's leadership and Nuck's leadership are vastly different. Um, Pato's more of a provider. He tries to empower his men and and wants only the best for the club, whereas Nuck wants the club to be his the representation of who who he is. It's, he likes to rule by an iron fist. Everybody does what he says, and those two philosophies come pretty much head to head as soon as he gets released from prison. And um, so, you know, which which of course gets in the way of him trying to save his brother. So yeah. quite a few different sort of dynamics there. But it is, yeah, ultimately it is story of father and son. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, uh, Matt Nabel, uh, I thought it was interesting because Matt Nabel uh, and Aaron Peterson, in fact, both seemed a little different to maybe what we are used to seeing. Are you, when you do something like this, are you aware of trying to get something different from actors or do you just approach approach it by what's in the script and what the characters need no i mean i'm always i guess ultimately it is always character driven but i get that different directors will connect to different aspects and want to make the characters as interesting as possible at least i do um so i'm always i'm always looking for my actors to surprise me and right. um you know with 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 Nuck, um it really was a man that 
on the surface is ruling with an iron fist, but is you know when you watch the film, you realise that he's actually dealing with a lot of internal confusion mm. um, about who he is as a person, and and um, he's actually kind of one of the most vulnerable characters in the film. Yeah, um, and then and then Sugar Aaron Pedersen's character, I kind of just wanted to see something that I hadn't seen before in an outlaw motorcycle world, which was somebody that's incredibly charismatic and and conniving i guess that came a bit more from the um the shakespearean aspect as well right i just wanted to make the characters as interesting and and layered as possible well uh abby lee's got a, a pivotal role what what was there about her uh when she was cast to be katrina what what quality were you seeing yeah well so katrina's an interesting character because you kind of she's got the biggest arc i suppose of any of the characters or the biggest surprise and you don't want to pick it straight away but at the same time you want to believe that she could she could be part of this world so for me when i when i chatted to abby about the role you know she was really excited about potentially coming on board but i just i just felt she had a real presence and and um mystery about her that i felt was right for the role and also a counterpoint to um simon kessel's character Haley, who was very much the archetype mm. loyal um club matriarch and um you know I, I i wanted to see what what a real lady macbeth character uh put in put in against head to head with this character would look like again it was trying to find two opposites of the spectrum as we did with Pato and nuck and uh, there's plenty of, as I said earlier, there's plenty of intensity in this. What, uh, how, how did you go about what seemed like it could be a super intense shoot? How did you, how did you deal with that? It was tough, um, but at the same time, I mean, the intensity that's on screen is what happened on the day. Like we were all committed to being as uncompromising as possible, and from the actors through to the crew to try and, I mean, most of the takes that are filmed. Were done it done in long takes so that it felt really visceral and unpredictable. Um, as a result, a lot of the actors get got quite banged up, you know, in some of the some of the fight scenes and things like that. But we needed that real intensity and unpredictability for it to feel real, and um, that was something we were all um, committed to from the get go. Uh, I think it reads on the screen, which um, you know, most people come out of the cinema feeling like they. they it's a, they need to get their breath back after the film, which is good. Um, <laughs> and I think that only really happens if, if you shoot that type of intensity. Um, but at the same time, we all had a great time on the weekends. You know, we're all friends <laughs> once the camera stopped rolling, but everybody was very committed um, on the day. Well, why was Western Australia the ideal location for the film? Yeah, so Western Australia, I grew up in Western Australia. And... Um, I just, you know, growing up, bikey culture is it's such a massive part of, of um, Western Australian identity. You know, as a kid, you're told about the bikey clubs and they're referred to like the boogeyman. And um, I just felt I wanted to also show an aspect where I grew up. Whenever I see Perth on screen, it's usually, you know, blue skies and, and beaches. And, you know, that's not the area of Perth I grew up in. And um, <laughs> I've always wanted to, to show you know, what's, what's this place look like 10 kilometres away from the coast and that's where the film's set. Well, that certainly came across in this. It was great seeing those parts, which just as you say, we, we hardly ever get to see on screen. Anyway, um, thanks very much for your time. I know you've got to move on and do another interview. We really appreciate your time, Stephen. We hope for the best for the film when it uh, 
goes into wide release. Oh, thanks, Phil. No, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, thanks for the support. And, um, yeah, tell everyone to go and see it opening weekend. We absolutely will. All right. See you later, Stephen. Thanks, mate. All right, bye. Bye. You asked me to look after things, and I've done what you asked. Things are different now. Things are different out here. Not what I'm involved with. You listen to me. We've worked too hard to get to where we are. We're not giving that up. You're the president, and do it so the man can see it. I'm the president, me! You are with me or you're not! You're not the sort of man that walks away from anything. Kill him.